Okay, I'm Chris Avina with American Outdoor News. And today we have a really special guest. We have Mike Arnold. He is the author of Bring Back the Lions. Uh, really, uh, really excellent book. I love African books. And this one really grabs you from the beginning. Uh, I definitely recommend taking a look at it. Mike, thanks for coming on. Hey, thank you, Chris. Thank you for having me here. Now, you spent a lot of time in Africa. What drew you to Africa? Well, um, it's going to sound morbid at first, so bear with me. Uh, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer back in 17. Uh, my oncologist is really sad. Uh, I was supposed to die within a year, and I'm still here after five and cancer-free, and I'm, I'm ruining their data. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy about that. Me too. But I was uh, pretty sick and, and uh, lots of surgeries and, you know, drug things that everybody goes through. And I feel bad for folks who have cancer, anybody. But my brother called me one day and I was sick as a dog. And he said, uh, let's go hunting. Uh, my big brother and I have hunt together. My big brother, Randy, and I hunt together a lot. And we thought we might go out west, go elk hunting or something, uh, if I could, you know, manage it physically. And I asked him, hey, you've been, to, he had been to Africa. I had never been. I said, why don't we try to go to Africa? And that's what first drew us, drew me there, was a trip to South Africa in 2018. And since then, I just became an addict. I know you were hit there. I mean, that that uh, green rhino hunt that you did recently, I know you've been there a bunch. So um, it's just a wonderful place. And since then, I've gone back time and time again, Namibia, Mozambique, South Africa, et cetera. And so mostly in Southern Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's what drew me there to begin with was just uh, a big brother's love and saying, hey, let's go hunting. And so uh, that's how I got there. Now, Africa is like a drug. It keeps pulling you back and, you know, just uh, watching the sunrises and sunsets uh, are unbelievable. Nothing like you see here. It, yeah, and the sounds and smells, I mean, everything. And just the, I mean, you know, I mean, you're just around animals all the time. Well, and it's not just the wildlife that we're hunting, the game species, even though, uh, we're there to to hunt in a lot of cases, but, uh, but boy, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. Now, I, I got to ask you, uh, there, there's a lot of history uh, in Mo just in Mozambique, yeah. but what drew you to the Zambezi Delta in Mozambique? So uh, a buddy of mine, Craig Boddington, who I know is a buddy of yours as well, yeah. um, I knew about the Zambezi Delta Safaris uh, area, Katata 11, from Craig's writings, uh, because that's a favorite place of his. In fact, he was, he was kind. He put his, uh, a quote, uh, a review for us, and the, his quote is, one of his quotes is on the front of my book, this new book. So, uh, but I knew about it from Craig's writings. And I contacted Mark Haldane originally, who's the outfitter there, for Katata 11 for Zambezi Delta Safaris and just set up a trip. In the interim, before I was supposed to go over in 2020 uh, for the first time, um, I got talking to Mark and I said, you know, I'm a conservation biologist, a research scientist, as well as an outdoor writer. What would you think about a book being written about there? 
And he said, well, I don't want an auto or I don't want a biography about me, but I would love to have to see a book come out about our work here and the conservation and the restoration of the area people wise as well. But that area, the Zambezi Delta Safaris, to go back to, uh, sorry, Zambezi area, that Delta area in the Marameo complex, like you said, it's been game rich and known for being game rich up until 1975 when the wars all started. Yep. It was, it was a, a paradise of game animals. Uh, 50s and 60s, especially the 60s, there was a lot of outfitting going on there, a lot of uh, international hunters coming over, doing trophy hunting. Unfortunately, it fell apart between 75 and 92 when the war stopped, when the Civil War stopped, uh, and it had been poached out. So Mark, when Mark came in, in 94, there were like 30 sable antelopes, for example. Now there are 3,000. There were 250 water bucks. Now there are 25,000 water bucks. So they've done a great job with conservation, but it really crashed during the war. And so they had to bring it back. It's, it's really amazing. Uh, they, they've gone through so many changes there. Um, they were originally, they weren't even Mozambique. <laughs> yep, that's right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, it's just uh, that tropical area, and it's a deltaic area, which uh, your listeners probably know, but it means it gets flooded and it brings in rich soil. Uh, each, it's like being in southern Louisiana, you yeah. know, I mean, where the Mississippi used to spread out, it doesn't do it anymore because we control it, but it sets that delta up and it's rich rich area so it grows everything and i don't mean agriculturally but just for the wildlife there oh my goodness it's a rich area it's rich with uh, tremendous crocodiles <laughs> <laughs> there is that i do have a, i do have a story that that mark told me thinking i guess he thought i was going to find it fascinating i was going out into the area out there one of the things that's in one of those chapters about the dangerous animals and there the danger you know being in katata 11 there are dangers was about one of the the uh intern ph is getting getting gotten by a crocodile and mark was telling me all about it and he thought it was going to be really interesting and exciting to me and all it did was scared the crap out of me because i was going out there the next day <laughs> amazing how fast those things are <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, what compelled you to write write the book? So what I wanted to do, um, you know, I'm a professor, so I think in terms of graphs, I think of our community in North America and across the world. Uh, I have a lot of non-hunting friends. Uh, my wife's a non-hunter, not an anti-hunter. Uh, she's my videographer and photographer on my safaris and my hunting trips and that sort of thing. But Frances shoots, she loves shooting, absolutely loves shooting, and, uh, but she's just not interested in hunting. I think the vast majority of folks, say, in North America are non-hunters, not anti-hunters. Yeah. And so I think that there's a graph, like a bell-shaped curve, where you have folks on one side of it who will never be okay with hunting. And we're just not going to reach them. And we just need to say, okay, you know, if we can do it with them, we're going to say we agree to disagree. 
most of the time we're just going to have to ignore them and they're going to have to ignore us, I guess. And then on the other side of that curve, there's people like you and I who are passionate about hunting and we're always going to be supporting hunting. We're always going to love it. It's just who we are. But in that middle, and I think it's the vast majority of folks, there's a lot of folks I wanted to write a book for who are non-hunters, not trying to get them to hunt, but to be supportive of hunters. Mm-hmm. Now, this book, I think, speaks to hunters, too. Okay, I've had hunting friends who've read the book and have loved it. Okay, so I'm not saying that. But I wanted to write a book to tell non-hunters and hunters about using this model in Mozambique, in Katata 11, where they have brought the game and the ecosystems and the songbirds and everything else back, okay, through conservation and anti-poaching. And they've also then built up what's really a middle class for the villagers within this hunting concession. So they have gotten rid of starvation, gotten rid of malnutrition, you know, provided healthcare, schools, stuff, all this. So I wanted to show, and it's all only trophy hunting dollars and hunting dollars, whether it's money coming in from Cabela Family Foundation mm-hmm. or directly from hunters like you and me, you know, going over there and paying our trophy fees. Uh, it's That's only where the money has come from. It hasn't come from some other NGO like Bill Gates or somebody like that. And, and yet... Bill Gates. <laughs> <laughs> now, I didn't mean to make you angry. But anyway, so... Uh, but all I'm saying is it didn't. Uh, it came from hunters. And I wanted to show hunters, encourage them, and say, look, this is a message you can tell your hunting and non-hunting friends. You know, this is what you can transmit. You can give them this book. And uh, as long as they're not an anti-hunter, they're not going to be offended mm-hmm. uh, per se, but there are hunts in there. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a passionate hunter, and I am not going to apologize for that. But it's, it's just as much stories about the regeneration of people's lives there as it is the regeneration of the ecosystems and the hunting. So that's why I wrote it. Well, I... <laughs> Our conservation model through hunting, it, it's a proven track record. It works. Absolutely. You know, you have uh, all these um, animal rights groups that raise millions of dollars, and, and their dollars go into heat campaigns. They don't do anything for conservation. We have the Pittman-Robertson Act where, yeah. you know, we have a self-imposed tax on guns, ammo, licenses, Last year alone, we raised like $1.2 billion for, for conservation. Yep. And that's, that's exactly right. The Pittman-Robertson money. People don't, you know, even hunters, I think, Chris, don't understand and don't know about this. But, I mean, that's, you, you, you're right. What, 1938, the, the manufacturers, the gun manufacturers, the ammo manufacturers, the hunters went to Congress, went to the federal government and said, you need to put an excise tax on us. And they did. That I don't know of another time when people have gone and said, we want a tax. We want a new tax. Yeah. <laughs> but that money, like you said, it is earmarked. It goes to the states, as you know, it goes straight into the state coffers of the wildlife conservation units in the states, in the individual states, 
and that it has mandates what it can be used for, as you know, buying land for conservation, protecting areas, you know, doing studies on wildlife to try to figure out how to get their numbers to increase. Well, now the Biden administration is really trying to gut the uh, dollars from the Pittman Robertson Act, and they're trying to um, play the shell game, move it to something that they want to spend it on, but it's it's our money. It's, it's you know, we we asked for this tax, not them. And exactly. And it's even expanded into archery products, uh, bows, arrows, uh, uh, you know, and things of that nature that were yeah. generating uh, tax dollars to uh, make sure the next generation enjoys the outdoors as we do. Absolutely, absolutely, and we have to fight the the movement to try to take that money and use it for something else because it's going to devastate ecosystems. It's going to devastate uh, state budgets for wildlife conservation and ecological conservation. It really will devastate them, and the states know that. You know, any state would know that. Well, as as a biologist, can you explain when we take a plot of land and we bring in, uh, uh, we bring back a certain species that is no longer in that area. Can you explain the trickle down effect? How it affects everything uh, ecologically in that whole area? Yeah, so um, I'll, use, I'll use two examples if you don't mind. Let's, let's start in North America. And I'm going to give you the example of the wolves in Yellowstone and, and in that area, okay? Controversial. Um, and the trickle-down effect is good, okay? I would argue that you want your apex predators there, okay? Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to use the lions in Mozambique and the cheetahs in a minute. But you want your apex predators there to help with the balance. What you can't do, because we do not live in a non-disturbed situation. And what I mean by that is there are humans around yep. and we impact the environment and we limit, say Yellowstone, there are boundaries. And if you don't call wolves, for example, I know people are gonna pick up on what I just said and I'm gonna get emails about this, but if you don't keep that predator population in check, you're gonna crash your herbivores like moose, like elk, like deer, okay? And that is what is happening in Yellowstone right now, okay, and in that area, because there's been a movement to say, you can't kill the wolves, okay? You can't hunt them. You can't bring hunters in and hunt them, that's wrong. Well, what you end up with is the devastated environment. You can't just blindly say we're going to let nature sort it out because what you're going to do is drive things to extinction because it's not a natural system. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, we would love for it, you know, to say, hey, it's completely natural, but it's not. We've put a boundary around it. It's a park. Okay. There's not a fence, but it's a park. So anyway, that's one thing. I think, I think the wolves should have been reintroduced uh, for a balance, an ecological balance, but they need to be controlled. That's just, you're just going to have to control the predators. Or That's it's never going to happen, though. They're never well, going to allow us to control the wolf numbers. Uh, you never That's know. That's the poster child for uh, animal rights activists. 
I know, but you never know. You know, I mean, there may be a change in a tide. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Now, going, going to Mozambique, they reintroduce lions, okay? And they put in 24 lions in 2018 into Katata 11 because they wanted the apex predator. Mark Haldane understood they're going to eat his $15,000 sables, okay? <laughs> Occasionally, they're going to knock off some really expensive animals, Yep. And he wasn't going to hunt. And the deal was they would not hunt those 24. Okay. That was the deal. The Cabela Family Foundation paid for them. And the, the deal was, and they didn't want to. We, they didn't want to disturb. They needed that number of lions to increase. Okay. So the point was get them in there and let them increase, let them divide up. And then once they became a mature population, then start hunting them. Okay, that's a different model to Yellowstone and all that. So what they have now is, well, when I reviewed the lion situation for and wrote it up for Sports Appeal last year, I guess it was, uh, well, not I guess, but for last year, it was up to 60. Okay, so they've increased. They've done wonderfully. It's going to reach a point and the mature males will get to a point where they're kicked out. You know, the older males are kicked out of pride, so they're no longer reproducing they'll be able to start hunting the new generations and they plan to do it. Mm -hmm. You know how much they charge? Well, I don't know what Mark's going to charge. So I should say that $150,000 is what the estimate or $100,000, $120,000 in that area would probably be about right. So um, for each one of those non-reproductive older males, all of that money is going to go back into conservation and human restoration. I mean, let's face it, it's going to employ people and it's going okay. to feed people and it's going to lead to ecosystem uh, protection. So those are the two models. I wanted to mention the wolves because you're right. We may never be able to get that balance back into, a, you know, sorry, that situation back into a balance. If we're not, then we should never have put the wolves in there. Nope. But if we are, if there's a title change and people say, you know, things are getting whacked, then, you know, then they may have to do, well, they should do something. But it, on the other side, you have an enlightened program in Mozambique from the Mozambique government down saying we are going to control the situation, but allow it to be as natural as possible. So there's your two examples I would use. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break to uh, acknowledge some of our sponsors. Uh, Underwood Ammo, always a standard of excellence. Love my Underwood Ammo. Uh, Pyro Putty and Phone Scope, innovative products, and of course, Hunt of a Lifetime. We're going to hear from them in a second. And when we come back, we're going to discuss a little bit about uh, anti poaching efforts. We'll be right back. We love our children, we protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. 
Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. Okay, and we're back with uh, Mike Arnold, the author of Bring Back the Lions. Mike, in this model that you were involved with in uh, the Zambezi Delta, can you tell us a little bit about the anti-poaching efforts and how that came about and how effective they've actually been? Well, and, you know, hand in hand with uh, Mark Haldane and his partners, they, they had two initiatives, if you will, uh, to begin with, to try to increase the, uh, to, to protect the ecosystems, increase the game animals so that they could bring in more hunters, generate more income so that then they could, you know, protect the ecosystems even better, help the local folks better. So they had two initiatives. The first, and they went, they went hand in hand, really. I shouldn't say the first, but they needed to feed people. People were starving to death there. Okay, mm -hmm. just like across Mozambique, there's about 46% malnutrition. In Katata 11, there's no malnutrition today. Okay, children are well-fed. They also have schools and health that's, clinics. That's amazing. It is amazing. Okay, so, um, so they had to have a source of protein, okay, meat protein. Well, those were the trophy animals that were being hunted. The, now, it was few and far between to begin with. But they generated, their goal was to give them 10 pounds of bread meat a, a week, which they do now. Okay, every family gets 10 pounds of bread meat, plus they have a fishing co-op, okay? And they get a lot of uh, meat from that as well, protein from that. Now, going along with that, Mark understood he had to have anti-poaching in there, okay? Who better to be the anti-poaching squads but the local guys who were the poachers? Okay, so it's a catch me if you can kind of situation where he brought in, he went to the local folks and said, look, if you will help us to build these animals up, we will have more money for employment. We will be having more food for you, but we have to stop poaching. And so over time, he has built this up into basically a small army of local people, local guys who are broken up into squads who patrol on motorcycles and on foot and in trucks, his area daily, okay? There's always someone out there. They also use helicopters, okay? Mm -hmm. to serve their helicopters, they have a whole fleet of helicopters actually there, once wow. again, paid for, and the gas for and all the maintenance for, all of it's paid for by $100. Dallas Safari Club, you know, Michigan chapter of Safari Club International, yours and my money when we go hunt there, you know, that sort of thing. So they crisscross the area every day, okay, in helicopters, but they also have these squads because you have to have guys on foot finding the traps, finding the snares. They've gotten it to a point now, okay, they started in 94, it was littered with snares and gen traps, those big 
huge tooth traps. It was littered with them. And they just had to keep bringing them in. Okay, just oh. bringing them in, finding them and bringing them in and finding the poachers and turning them over to the police. And it's gotten to the point now where they rarely find a trap or a snare because they have such a great program. Well, I mean, it's no secret that poaching can really be devastating to any ecosystem. And as we had already discussed, um, you know, I had read an article where there was a stack of elephant ivory and rhino horns, had to be 20 feet tall. Mm. And they just burned it. Yep. You know, if they just took all of that ivory that they confiscated, and flooded it into the marketplace, the prices would have went way down. Yep. And the poaching would have stopped or at least diminished because supply and demand. They had thousands of pounds of ivory. Yeah. Put it into the put it into the marketplace, let them sell it, trade it, do what they want to do with it, and the demand would diminish greatly. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, a lot of the poaching, particularly for something now, rhino, black rhino, we're going to sit to the side That's because, you know, the horn is, yeah, I mean, that, that material is worth literally more than, you know, cocaine, more than gold, more than diamonds. I mean, it is just, it's just off the chart. It's a different, it's a different universe. But something like um, elephants, say in Mozambique, a lot of the time the poaching for elephants anyway, now they want the ivory. Okay, the poacher's going to take the ivory. I'm not denying that at all. Yep. I mean, that's what he's going to do. But a lot of those in Mozambique turn out to be human-wildlife conflict situations. And if, if you have a government like Mozambique, now Mozambique is really poor, Chris. I mean, it is, it's very poverty-ridden, yep. but it has one of the most progressive governments in terms of hunting concessions and control of wildlife in the world. It's set aside 28% uh, of its landmass for wild areas, okay, like parks. Most of that, though, are hunting concessions of some sort. So they've set those aside, but it, the human wildlife conflict, the government is willing to bring in a hunter or someone to get rid of an elephant that is destroying local land and property and threatening people or whatever, or a, or a hippo or whatever it happens to be. It, you need a government, you need, you need a system where people do not value the animals above human life. And if they do that, then they're able to remove that elephant. Maybe they dart it and they move it to a park. They wanna do that, but it just costs a darn much. They can't afford to do that quite often. So they will get rid of it. And then that ivory doesn't end up in the illegal wildlife trail. So they'll issue a license. And, yep. and what a lot of people don't even think about, when a license is issued, all the villagers know about it. When there's a confirmed kill, they come out of everywhere. Absolutely. The only thing left, they butcher that on the spot. The only thing left is a blood spot. They take the bones and everything. Yep. You know, I, I hunted for what was called a community buffalo. I've only, done, uh, I've only shot one Cape buffalo in my life, and it was a non-trophy. Now, he was beautiful, but I was not allowed to bring back horns or skin or anything. 
Okay, but I paid for it, you know, so you pay for the opportunity to hunt the Cape Buffalo, and it was a great hunt, scared the poop out of me, but I mean, it was a great hunt. I mean, well, he dropped with one shot, but I was convinced I was going to mess up. So, uh, you know, it was it was a great hunt, but that Cape Buffalo fed 60 families. So it, what they do is they divvy these up between different villages, mm -hmm. and it's on a rolling schedule calendar that is maintained by the local uh, liaison officer. He knows which village gets the meat. And mine, with a Cape Buffalo the size big bull like I shot, it's about 600 pounds of boned meat. Yep. Well, we took everything. They brought the head. I mean, they would have used, now I wouldn't eat brains that often. I do it occasionally, you know, various places like Papua New Guinea and stuff where they feed it to me. But that they would have used that, the tongue, and and the thing about it is, they so the stomach, they love stomach. Now, I hate stomach, okay? I've eaten that all over the world, and I have never enjoyed it. But I was a, I was in the minority in Katata 11. The, every bit, like you said, every bit of the internal organs are taken. And I don't think we understand about when we tell our non-hunter friends when, that the, the body, the carcass of an elephant, or like you just said, is utilized, we need to emphasize nothing is left. Nothing is wasted. Yeah. Nothing is wasted. They, they make tools and arts and crafts out of the bones. Yep. The skin, the, uh, the well, the, the meat, they come with buckets. And <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, we have to remember that in our own history, we ate everything. Yeah. As we hit the East Coast, where well, we were on the West Coast, two humans, I mean, we ate everything from East to West. So, you know, in Georgia, white-tailed deer were extinct until the 1920s-ish, and then hunters started paying to reintroduce them. They were extinct. Yeah. Now, we have one and a half million. You know, Texas, where I grew up, uh, most of the counties by 1900, white-tailed deer were extinct there, and now we have, they have like 5.4 million. Well, Why? Well, because we reintroduced them, but we ate everything from, just like, you know, someone will say, well, you know, the Africans are just not, you know, thinking about this. And I'm like, man, we did exactly, why do you think we're having to reintroduce elk over here? You know, yeah. the Mississippi. Yeah. You're, you're right about that in Georgia, though. I spoke to Travis Trett, who grew up in Georgia, yeah. the singer, country singer. And he said when he would go hunting as a kid, they would never see a deer in Georgia. It was yep. nothing. You know? yeah. And, yeah, you know, and now they're they're plentiful. Oh yeah. Yeah, we uh yeah, we have to protect all of our plants in our house area. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. I like having the whitetails around. So I'll sit out on my deck. <laughs> I'll stand guard. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but yeah, we're actually running out of time. Mike, where can we find your book? All right. Well, I appreciate it. So bringingbacktolions.com. You put that in your web browser and it'll pop up a uh, page on my website, uh, which is mikearnoldoutdoors.com. But you can, you just put in bringingbacktolions.com. It'll pop up that sale page. It'll give you an excerpt. You can look, read from one of the chapters. 
if you happen, and I know Chris has viewers outside of North America, if you happen to be outside of North America, if you scroll down that page, you'll see that a bunch of Amazon sites for overseas pop up. So you can, you can go to Amazon here as well, but you can also just order it directly from bringingbackthelions.com. And as I said yesterday, I am uh, an African uh, book junkie. <laughs> and I, I started it and I can't put it down. So uh, my magazine might be late in publishing because I'm reading your book. <laughs> oh, well, that's very kind of you to say, but I hope your magazine isn't late because I like reading it. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank you again for your time. Definitely check out Bringing Back the Lions and uh, uh, look forward to seeing you again. Thank you, Chris.